Take a cup of scripture this morning and turn to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. We have the text for our sermon this morning. Uh, when I return, we'll return to our sermons, our psalm series. This morning, Isaiah 46. Before we hear from the Lord and the Lord preached, uh, let's pray and ask His blessing upon those very things. Pray with me. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we come again before you, we seek to hear your voice through uh, the word preached and read, and Lord, we uh, are humbled uh, in your presence. We bask in knowing the privilege of that presence as we worship together as your people now, and we thank you that you are holy and that you purge out from us all that is unholy and unclean, that you are gracious, and that you're able to deal with us in our sin and in our the blackness of our hearts and our dirtiness. We thank you that you're merciful and able to lift us up in our weakness and in our frailty, and that you're strong and good and true and gracious. We pray, dear Lord, as we turn to you again and to your word, and as we listen to every word that comes forth from your mouth, to place that word in our hearts, that they may begin to love in new ways. Place it in our minds, we may understand your ways better. Set our wills by that word, and we may submit our wills readily, gladly to your perfect wisdom and your sovereign will. In all of our life, we may learn how to glorify and to enjoy you forevermore. And so we come to you again, Lord, and ask speak for your servants who are listening. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Psalm 46. Full attention, this is the word of our God. I'm sorry, Isaiah 46. Did I say Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, starting at verse 1. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on, beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens. On weary beasts, they stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me? and make my equal, and compare me, that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse, and weigh out silver on the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer, or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, these the things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel's glory. 
so for the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but this word of our Lord endures forever. Well, it's such a delight, as I said earlier, to be here with you this morning. Word, sacraments, prayer, both sacraments, right? The baptism, the Lord's Supper in a moment. What a blessing to witness, right? Um, I want to take a look at uh, this morning, Isaiah 46. We'll go back for Psalm series, as I said. Uh, next time I preach, but today Isaiah 46. And in this passage, it's worthy of deep meditation, um, especially in the muck and mire of life that we go through, in a world that seems to be breaking apart. Uh, the setting of this song, of this uh, passage, this text, is God's people in captivity in Babylon. You recall your Old Testament history. And they weren't really having a year or two that seemed to be falling apart, but they were having decades of heartbreak for them. It's been a long, long time since they had any joyful or peaceful times. And what happens? The Lord comes to them at the end of that captivity and he preaches good news. Good news to the people that need this good news. And he gives them reason for encouragement and for hope. And the message that is preached to them is also for us, dear Christians. It's also for us, the same message. It's for us to, for our encouragement and our hope in our lives during the seasons and years and weeks of our lives, even this very morning. God's promise and practice is to carry you, even through all of life and unto glory, with him forever. He alone can do it. Certainly idols cannot do it. And therefore we can throw off the impotent idols and rest ourselves fully in Christ, right? To rest ourselves fully in Christ, who can and truly does save and carry you to the end forever. So remember, trust and be encouraged and be hopeful uh, as we work through this text. <clears throat> but how? How is it that we are to uh, throw off? Why are we to throw off the worthless things and throw ourselves fully onto Christ and to rest ourselves in Him in totality? But how can we have this encouragement and hope in Christ? Well, we can so, as we see from this text, from God's protecting power, from His plan, right? His perfect plan, and also because of his precious promises, right? His power, his plan, and his promises. Uh, we can have hope and encouragement in Christ, uh, first because of his unending protection, his, his protecting power, if you will. And how does God begin to give his people care and protection? Here, as we look at this uh, passage, he gives, this, he gives them his word, right? And it's the same word that he always provides for his people. Uh, and that word is going to be what the people who heard it needed, right, most. And there were, there were people in, who spent a long time in this captivity, this Babylonian captivity. We don't have time to uh, unfold all of the book of Isaiah in detail, but on its most basic level, Isaiah is in two parts. Right? You can divide it into two parts. The first part are chapters 1 to 39, and in those chapters, Isaiah is doing what? He's prophesying about events that are happening in his time. And in the second part, the rest of the book, 40, chapters 40, 66, uh, this part deals with what? It's about events that happen long after Isaiah is gone. So from his context in the future. This part deals uh, with those things that will take place after he's no longer on the scene. And so Isaiah prophesied about the captivity in Babylon. When we go from 39 to 40, we move forward in time. Right? And 40 onward speaks of a time that is beyond most of the captivity. And the people are anxious to be freed and return to the land. They long to be liberated. 
This is what Isaiah 40 is about, beginning of the second section. God comes to his people, people so long in captivity, and he says what to them? You remember Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, comfort ye my people, speak ye peace, thus says the Lord. Speak tenderly to her. In Hebrew it says, speak to her heart. Speak to her heart, comfort. Call out to her that her warfare is over. And then verse 2, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's an encouraging word for God's people. But he's coming. He's coming to free them. And as we move through our text this morning, we see this quite graphically. Again, how does it begin? Uh, with these false gods. Baal, I'm sorry, yeah, Baal bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on the backs of livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on these weary beasts. They stoop down. They bow down together. They cannot save the birth themselves going to captivity, right? What does this mean? Well, these are the two great gods of Babylon, right? Bel and Nebo. And they're not foreign to us. We know these uh, these gods. They're on a cart being carried off by animals. Uh, we know them, right? Remember the, the from Daniel, uh, Belshazzar, right? Uh, that's Bel, a combination of the word. Uh, Nebo and Nebuchadnezzar, right? it's part of that name. And these are just compound names incorporating these gods of Babylon. And here they're depicted by the prophet as dumb, mute, failing, uh, falling over, and being carried by beasts they're tied to. And these gods, these idols, notice when they fall over, they stay falling over. And when they tip over, when they fall off, they don't get back up. There's nothing they can do. And we, we might think reflexively, well, what is Isaiah doing? Why is he begin? How is this hopeful and encouraging for the people of God? How is it hopefully encouraging for us in our lives? Why does God start with the idols, right? Tell me, tell me about the true God. I don't care about these idols. But the answer is simply this, is that God, he, he starts there so he can show the contrast between the impotence of the false God and the omnipotence of Yahweh, the true and living God. So he can show this contrast, absolute contrast between the two. And he tells us how, uh, to think about how different he is from these false gods. Right, again, listen, listen to verse 5. <clears throat> to whom will you liken me and make, my, make me and compare to me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver on the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and then they fall down and worship. They lift it on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. It stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries out to it, it does not answer or save from the trouble. And you see the contrast between the true and living God. Right? The idols, what? They burden the beasts. They, they're a financial burden. And they burden the backs of those who worship them. They must be carried along. They cannot say They're costly. Wealth is given, right? Notice the absurdity. Wealth is given to the goldsmith. And the idol is made. And then they give it back to those who are buying it. And they fall down and worship it. And they cannot move it. It's absurdity. It's absurd. Verse 7, if one cries to it, it is not an answer. It cannot save from trouble. Right? And this is part of the insanity of unbelief. The insanity of sin. Right? Idolatry is a taker. Right? We all know this. In all of its forms, it's a burden. It takes, it takes and takes and takes and gives nothing back. It's a liar. 
It's a burden. It weighs down and eventually it crushes. And in our time, there's not many people who make idols out of gold and silver. There are many, many people who make gold and silver into idols. Worshipping wealth, worshipping money. And there are very many things that we can make, uh, take and make idols of in our lives. And what does the Lord say about those things that we make into idols? <clears throat> about anything that you put in place of the true and the living God. They do nothing to take from them. They give no true lasting satisfaction. They give nothing in return. They do not help. They are altogether impotent, powerless. They cannot save. They cannot answer. And in fact, they burden to the point of destroying those who worship them. So brothers and sisters, are there things in your life that you are allowing as idols in your life? Things that are competing, challenging for your affection. Right? And this is a challenge, it's a question for all of us. Because as God's beloved children, we are to share our devotion with, uh, for God with nothing, with no one else, with nothing else. God alone is to be the object of our devotion and our glory and our delights. And we must be about the business of ridding our lives of anything that competes with Christ for our affection. We are to rest in Christ alone, Christ alone for our salvation, in his perfect and completed work on our behalf. So that's a challenge for us. May we be challenged daily by the reality of the warfare that rages as God's people fighting to put to death the idle factories of our hearts and the flesh that cling so closely to us until we reach glory. And may we know, and I proclaim to you now, even as we've heard earlier, as we have humbled ourselves and confessed our sins, we can be assured of our right standing before the Father. And forgive us our sins. Why? Why? It's not just mechanistic. We just don't read it for the fun of it. It's because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the glorious saying, the glorious promise, the glorious truth for our lives. And at the end of the day, idols burden and bear down. What does our Lord come and say in contrast? He says, you know what I like? I'm the burden bearer. I'm the burden bearer. I don't take anything from you because you don't have anything that I need. I take your sins, that's it. It is I who give to you from the overflowing springs and fountain of mercy and goodness and grace that's in me. And I don't need you to carry me like those idols. It's I who carry you. I'm the one that does the carrying. Verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Right? That's, that's our covenant of God. That's the Lord. And it's glorious. Right? It means everything. What a contrast, again, between the powerless idols and the all-powerful Lord of all things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The idols are made low. They're knocked down. They're brought to their knees. They're stooped. They're crouching. They're powerless over themselves, let alone anyone else. They must be carried. They cannot hear. They cannot respond. They cannot say, oh, but Yahweh is powerful. The true living God is all powerful. To create, to save, to rescue, to bear, to carry his people. He hears his people from his holy hill. So 
So brothers and sisters, he carried you from the womb. And even to your old age, he will carry you. What a glorious and delightful promise from the word of God. What a delightful promise. All that you go through in your lives, all that we go through, all of us, all manner of sorrows and difficulty, and the uncertainty through all of it, even to your old age, he is God, and he will carry you. Your pain and terror in your lives, suffering and sorrow, you have, if you've gone through those, or if you're going through them right now, you've been carried by your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, through all of it. And when we go through that trauma, what is his promise? Even to your old age, I will carry you. Even to your old age. Our all-powerful king will complete that work that he's begun as, as he's promised. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand. So is that reason for rejoicing and worship and praise, for comfort? Oh, indeed it is. Great comfort, great rejoicing and praise. <clears throat> but what if you're not served? What if you're not comforted? What if you're not rejoicing? If you're not, I would plead with you. Plead with the Lord for faith and trust and belief. And I plead that you will taste and see that the Lord is altogether good. Altogether good. We all have decisions to make in our lives. Will we serve that which is not God, or will we serve the one and only God? There's no offense in that. If you serve something that you have to carry, you are carrying a God that ends in destruction. You see, God carries you. The true God carries you. The true and the living God, that ends in what? Salvation. Salvation and life and rejoicing, even through the traumas of this life. Because his purpose of carrying you is what? To save you. To save you. Of course, we see that salvation is manifested when Jesus Christ appears. Because he appears as what? God with us. God with us. He is the burden-bearing God. It's interesting that at the end of the chapter 4, 46, Isaiah 45, it sets up these themes um, quite quite strikingly. Right? Listen to what uh, the end of Isaiah 45 says, verses 22 and 23. Just turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And then it says, to me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And our eyes, our ears prick up. What is this? We hear this. This is part of our, you know, our, our, our conscience. We see this burden-bearing God, Jesus, God with us, coming to flesh, taking the form of a servant. God tells us in Philippians, and what does it say, Philippians 2? Being, but made himself nothing, taking the form of servant, being made, born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Quoting Isaiah 45, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So there's the plan that Paul makes right in the New Testament. In this Jesus, he bears all the burdens which we are burdened by throughout the whole of our lives, even to your old age. I'll carry you. 
takes all these things that we are burdened by to the cross, even as we take them to him. And he suffers in your place. And we don't forget that. The glory of the sacrifice made. And may the truths and glory of the gospel never become old hat or mundane or regular to us. What does the psalmist tell us in Psalm 121? He will keep your life. He will keep your life. Indeed, Christ is our peace. He's the ultimate expression of that reality. He took all that we deserve for our sins. And when it came time, he agonized in prayer in the garden, remember. He submitted to the Father's will that he be forsaken. And why? Why, he asked, why am I forsaken, Father? Why, my son? Because I'm making you who knew no sin to be sin so that those upon whom I set my love would be my very righteousness. And the cup of the Father's wrath is filled and is taken, is pressed into the hand of the Son, and he drinks it down, down all of the cup of the wrath of the Father. And why? So that the cup of the Father's love can be taken and drank by his people. You and I, it's filled and it's overflowing, and we drink and we drink and we drink, and we lift it up for more, and it overflows again. What glory is that? love, what care, what delight. Do you know that? Have you tasted it? Have you drunk in this cup of Father's love? Have you seen His hand in your life? What protecting love, what mercy He has on us. I'm sure every one of you can tell, tell the times when He's carried you or someone very close to you. A Savior is needed, and that Savior has come. Jesus has what? Saved to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Brother says, we can have hope and encouragement in Christ, first of all, because of his never any protection in our lives. And we can also because of his never any plan for our lives. Verse 10 of our text. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purposes. What good news is that? What good news, brothers and sisters? It's good news because we see in this passage God's plan for his people in salvation. He plans to save them. He is sovereign. He is good. And for his people Israel, he promised what? To deliver them and to save them from the struggles of the worldly power from which they are needed to be saved from. And this God is going to execute his plan to save them from Babylon. And listen to what he says in verse 11. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from far country. God is going to call, he says, a bird of prey to come and descend upon Babylon and carry it away like a predator hunter. And this, of course, happened. Right? Historically. The Lord called, remember King Cyrus, and called him by name as the one who would authorize the temple's reconstruction. He carried, he made, he bore, he saved, even to old age I am need. And that verse continues stressing the certainty of this prophecy. The construction of the Hebrew is emphatic, right? The statements are powerful. For certain I have spoken. Surely I will bring it to pass. I have purpose. Indeed, I will do it. It's full of emphasis. And this really is good news. Good news for you who trust in Christ. It's not really good news because of the promise to deal with our worldly captivity and return to the land in their context. 
the really good news is that what? Is the rescue, the far greater problem of their spiritual captivity. Their spiritual captivity. Notice how the Lord refers to them in verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn heart. You who are far from righteousness. And then in verse 8, he calls them, you transgressors. And so in this passage, God promised to to rescue them from their worldly captivity, but also to save them from their spiritual bondage. They're hard-hearted. They are far from righteousness, he says. And this is where we move to God's promise. God's promise. He's got his protecting power and his plan, and his glorious promise that he gives in verse 13. uh, You are far from righteousness. But 13, I bring my righteousness near. My righteousness near. I will come. I will bring salvation to my people. I will bring near my righteousness. And how, dear Christian, does God bring his righteousness near? Well, he does so in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God with us. Emmanuel, that's what the word means. God with us. Not just for this uh, day, but for every Lord's day. Indeed, every hour of every day, he will be with his people. He will be with his people. Because on verse 13, my righteousness is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. I will adorn Israel with my splendor, with my beauty, is what it says uh, literally. And God does this because it's exactly what his people needed. Exactly what they needed. They have no righteousness of their own. So they need someone to bring God's righteousness to them from the outside. They cannot give what they don't have. They need a righteousness from outside themselves. And I've said this before, but uh, the Latin phrase for this is uh, outside ourselves. Uh, Extra nos. You may have heard extra nos. And I've probably said this before as well, but I I used this phrase once when I was teaching a class of ninth graders. And of course, all of them thought I said uh, extra nos. Uh, But it's not a nose, it's nos. Outside of ourselves, right? From outside. Like in Isaiah 46, righteousness is not derived from the self. They are far from righteousness. God meets that need and says, I will bring my righteousness near. And this is nothing less than the wonderful biblical doctrine, the teaching of justification by grace alone through faith alone. How we are saved, how we are made right with God by grace through faith. As stated here, on account of the righteousness of God, God's righteousness, which is Christ's righteousness, His righteousness, which He will bring. What a wonderful plan and promise of God that we have here this morning uh, for those of you who believe and trust yourselves upon Christ. There is no righteousness. There's no peace. There's no hope. There's no. Uh, there's no peace of soul. There's no satiation in your life, though you may chase it after. A million things apart from Christ. But in Christ, we are clothed with his righteousness. And as he promised, as we heard earlier, his peace is ours. Uh, wonderful, wonderful promise. We know too, we know as well that from the scriptures, this plan and promise um, wasn't, a, wasn't a rolling, changing thing. It was fixed from before the foundation of the world. Right? What, what, a, what a delight that is. What a wonderful uh, realization when that clicks with us. It's not moving. It's fixed. God is sovereign. The Father chose us in Christ. And God, the Holy Spirit, in time applied redemption, that salvation accomplished by Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection and session uh, 
upon those whom the Father had chose. Right? And so listen in verses 8, the glorious self-declaration of the Lord. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So as we close, let's hear what God says, tells his people to do. Right? Like there's application right in the text here. This passage is all about what God has promised to do. But we shouldn't miss the things that God calls us to do that are there in the passage. We see in verse 12, first of all, it says, listen to me. Listen to me. This is an increasingly difficult task in the world, the distracted world that we live in. And let's make positive efforts uh, to do this, to cultivate the ability to listen to the Lord. Pray to Him as we read His Word. Pray it back to Him. Uh, we'll be a shallower people. That fear will be coming. Just listen to me. What what better advice could there could, could you fall from that? Again, we're bombarded constantly. Uh, every moment of our waking hours with things vying for our attention, with things battling to be listened to. And again, I'm convinced that the constant stimuli and unceasing static and noise, uh, information, and distractions that assault our minds and soul have such a corrupting nature on them. It might be the greatest danger to making God's people impotent in their ability to think biblically, to reflect on the things of God. We must get quiet. Listen to me, he says. Get quiet. Quiet our minds and our spirits. To listen to the Lord and His Word as He transforms us by. Listen to me, he says. We don't have time to unpack all those practices uh, and ways to do that this morning. But I encourage you once again, to dig into Scripture, see what it has to say about meditation and prayer, biblical meditation and prayer, mulling over God's Word. Truly are, as has been said, the Christian's vital breath. Prayer is the vital breath of the Christian soul. We must listen to our Lord. It's the most significant struggle. Right? To do these things is the most, perhaps the most significant struggle. Spiritually, the most of us will engage in is not an easy thing to do. That's what we're called to do. Struggle spiritually. Why is it so neglected, right? And, and, uh, if it's so important and beneficial and delightful, and it is, it bears fruit. Because it's hard, it's not easy. It takes time, it takes quiet, it takes practice and patience. Things that most of us are not velocitized to uh, or acclimated to anymore. Yeah, we're probably also, we're, we're, we have a glut of information we take in. We're probably all guilty of listening to tons of sermons and lectures, but meditating on none of them. Come right by. And I think it was, uh, I'm not sure, but it was uh, centuries ago, um, one pastor said, one hour spent in biblical meditation is worth more than a thousand sermons. And that's true. Most of us do a thousand things to distract us and entertain us. But very little to grow us and make us any better. And so in this age, all these things, uh, lack of contemplation or reflection, make us grow thinner and weaker and weaker spiritually. And so let us heed the word from Isaiah here. Listen to him. Listen to me. Then the next thing he says is, remember who I am. Another glorious thing to reflect upon. We see this throughout scripture. Right? Paul even says, remember who you were. Right? And we remember who God is and His mighty deeds. 
and his protection and sustaining power of his people throughout history, the of history. Let's remember uh, who he has been for his people and who he promises to be in the future. And after we've listened to him and remembered who he was and who we are in him, we're to stand firm and be assured, it says, from this remembrance who God is. Listen, remember, stand firm. It's like a garland of three strings, as it were. We're called to undertake. Much more can be said, but we are out of time. But as we close, let's remember this. That as we descend back from meeting with the Lord, back from Mount Zion, and return to our frenzy world, let us acknowledge the similarities of God's people throughout time. Not just in Isaiah's time, but for all of history. Even the sameness of ourselves and our hearers uh, with the hearers of Israel, um, Isaiah, that he's speaking to, they were tempted to forget God. They were tempted to rely on idols, to move away from Him. And we do too. We have these temptations. And let us remember that Christ alone fully and truly satisfies. Nothing else can or ever will do. Let us remember what is true and what to do. What is true and what to do. What is true? Well, Christ is all-powerful. He paid our penalty and freed us from our sins. The bondage and guilt of that sin and the punishment. And then, if that's true, what to do? Well, we remember, we trust, we hope, and are encouraged by what Christ has accomplished. Right? Let us praise our God, brothers and sisters, for his powerful, sovereign, uh, that he's creator, that he's caregiver, that he's savior. Praise him for his care and his love. And how are we to respond to these glorious truths as we hear that? Again, trust and believe. Remember. Throw off the idols and look to Christ in faith for freedom, the freedom that he alone provides. Rest in Christ, the salvation, the only salvation for your soul. So let us confess in our weakness, we don't look to and rest in Christ as we should. We lack trust and faith and belief. And at times we do look to other things to satisfy us, idols, for fulfillment, for satisfaction rather than Christ. The grace we need, though, when we're in this situation, brothers and sisters, is trust and belief that what he tells us in his word is true. The cell door is open. You're free. Let's rest fully in Christ. He came. He carried the load of sins to the cross perfectly on our behalf. And he carries us even through his lives by the power and presence of his spirit and his prayers, constant intercession for us. Flee to him, brothers and sisters. I only say here. <clears throat> and I trust and pray that we'll live out in action and anticipation that God will indeed continue to grow you and conform you to the image of Christ, even this church unto glory. Right? Will you be a part of that? Are you a part of that? You live a whole soul commitment to Jesus, relying through it on all on the Holy Spirit and his presence in your lives. I pray that we all would. I mean, in the coming weeks and months and years, the extraordinary ones as you praise and glorify Him in the ordinary mundane things of life that are extraordinary because of who you are and who you belong to. God's people, right? It's, I mean, it would be used for His extraordinary glory and power for the giving of life to many. Maybe we may be instruments of His grace and love for the world. There's some need of that love. All to His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, 
We ask that you would give us hearts to believe what you tell us, or in fact, increase our faith and pray. Help us to rejoice and delight in the life that you've given us. Help us to, even in hard times, help us to hope and even thrive as your people, as those united to Christ. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.